Welcome to FinTech Fridays. Oh yeah! It's a weekly podcast brought to you by the National Crowdfunding and FinTech Association of Canada and Partners. Covering all things FinTech, blockchain, P2P, AI, and alternative finance. Our special guest today is James Wallace, co-founder and CEO of Exponential. James, great to have you here today. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start by talking a little bit about your background? What, what was your journey to where you are today? Well, I was a, a serial entrepreneur, even up until I was 17, and that would have been 1993. I opened a, a storefront in 93 and realized that uh, I really didn't enjoy the retail environment. People turn into little mini monsters, even the nice ones get a little weird. So <laughs> I contemplated for, for quite a while, what do I do if I, and, and actually I came from, from a family that had a manufacturing distribution commercial manufacturing distribution background and I didn't enjoy that either so I thought you know I don't enjoy working with people and not working with people what do I do and in that contemplation late nights at the store I started thinking about the internet and thought is that a way to distribute things and it just seemed a lot more fun than manufacturing and and selling and distributing goods so in 1993 I started building um, what I thought was going to be this beautiful pre-Amazon e-commerce distribution platform and it turned out to be Nothing more than a glorified brochure, digital brochure and catalog site. Uh, it took me months and months and months to, to build. But at that point, I realized that the internet was here to stay, even though back then people were still saying it was just a fad. And I also realized that technology, computer programming, was a, a profound exponential lever, something that you, uh, with relatively few dollars, uh, you can build something, put it into the world, and, and have it... Uh, you know, go viral and have it be shared with, uh, with, with, with the world almost overnight. So I got really excited about that and took, um, diverged uh, away from computer programming and more into product development and began to hire computer programmers and just became a serial tech entrepreneur. And I've been playing in, in uh, technology, building companies more recently have sort of uh, put aside the, the founder hat in favor of taking my, my capital, our capital, and my advice and our advice and, and deploying that into amazing uh, founders that are building extraordinary products and services. And that, uh, and that is the, the foundation for your current uh, operation, Exponential, is that right? That's correct. Now, now tell me, what, what is the vision behind Exponential? Well, the, the original vision is, is actually intact, and that is something I don't get a, a lot of opportunity to discuss in the financial services circle um, because we talk a lot about what we're doing with our securities exchanges and, and investment banks and so on. But what's still at the core is, and in fact, all those, those products and services that we built, teams that we built, are built in order just to, to service the, the value creator, uh, the true value creator. So we have, still have a very venture-centric mind. We believe that innovators and, uh, and tech uh, startup founders are extraordinary value creators, and um, and we have basically essentially grown uh, all of these products and services to surround that. We stated very very clearly is that we invest in startups that alleviate suffering or expand human potential in order to uh, to bring to market products and services that allow access to meaningful living for everyone everywhere. Um, so it's those those people 
uh, on a day-to-day basis are still regarded as our uh, core focus, yeah. Okay, and, and so I saw you mentioned in uh, one of your podcasts and you talked about exponential thinking. Could you go into that a little bit and explain why it's important? Yeah, the, the human mind actually can't think exponentially. It can only uh, imagine exponentially and it can only do that if it, if it struggles very, very hard to do that. And as much as I love exponential from, from a, uh, um, a business model standpoint to, to, to a uh, sort of systems um, um, building standpoint, I still, as, as much as I've played with exponentials, I still have to remind myself to get out of linear thinking. The, 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 the three-dimensional human brain is stuck in linear uh, thinking. So, you know, one way to, to really convey this message is that, you know, 30 linear steps and you're 30 feet away, uh, 30 exponential steps, and you're from planet Earth to the moon, to back to Earth, back to the moon. Um, it, it is an extraordinarily different way of, of, of mapping growth and things. And so what I, what I said earlier as well about just creating something, putting it out into the world, especially via the internet, especially on social platforms, we're going to see just, we can see just extraordinary adoption, extraordinary uh, proliferation and sharing. Um, so these exponential principles are rooted in that sort of thinking. How do, how does one uh, create bigger levers? How does one uh, get more done with less, which is still, you know, you can do that incrementally and linearly as well. But when you start thinking about algorithms in, um, uh, Salim Ismail, a friend of ours and an author of the book literally called Exponential Organizations, puts it in, in 10 different categories and talks a lot about, uh, as I said, algorithms and dashboards and staff on demand. Um, these sort of, of, of the ability to gain access to something. Um, one of the principles is not ever owning because there's overhead and costs associated with ownership, leasing uh, for a fraction of the cost and giving it back when you don't need it anymore. There, there's a, a lot of different um, exponential principles that can be employed and deployed by an enterprise to facilitate um, growth that is, you know, again, exponential. So many, many, many um, times, e- even month over month, and definitely year over year. Okay. And, and one of the other elements that you talked about in that um, particular conversation was, was about the concept of curation and the importance of a, an abundance mindset in the exponential economy. Is this, this kind of what you're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that, that all those things are, are, are critical in, in the future. To me, I, I, for me, I see them slightly um, separated but coalescing in that, in that new world, certainly. Okay. Um, now, how about, um, how about giving us a sort of an overview of how Exponential works as an organization. Well, it was, it's actually really, really good that we had an opportunity to put the founder, as we say, we actually call them the value creator, as I mentioned, at the core. Um, that's something that's not as obvious sometimes. And, and essentially, having gone from actually a super angel fund, so it was just my partner and I put on our own capital, deployed that over the last three years and and then just now recently actually became venture capital uh, for, for those that don't know that the only difference between an angel and a venture capitalist is the venture capital plays with other people's money and so we started uh, building things that would allow other people's money to come in because we realize obviously the more capital we can deploy in this framework the more 
we can shift in our one of our mandates, perhaps our core mandate is to migrate uh, society to an era of prosperity and meaning. And uh, through the, the, the essentially uh, digi- digitizing everything and uh, creating this new digital economy, which is, um, you know, democratized, open and, 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 and freer. So getting back to, to where we were, we realized that the digital economy was, was uh, forming around us. And we could either be an active participant or a passive participant. We were going to be a participant no matter what. We made a couple of investments in, uh, in companies that were really excited about the ICO craze. We realized that we couldn't participate in that because there was a lot of issues, legal liability, um, lack of compliance. We foresaw that this was going to turn into something that would be not worth um, uh, engaging that. And, and, and I think that we've seen recently that that is the case. The venture capital fund, though, or, or our angel fund, was very interested in the idea, though, of democratizing access to early stage investments, which I think the ICO craze showed an insatiable appetite for the retail public to invest in things that mattered, and specifically early stage. Uh, and a lot of those white papers that unfortunately are no longer companies, some that were funded millions and tens of millions of dollars, unfortunately, uh, were very interesting. They had a lot of really interesting ideas that got people very excited and a lot of people put a lot of money into them. So we thought there's something there, not just on the, the issuer side, the founder side in terms of fundraising, but also on the investment side, that there's an untapped need, not, not a market, not an opportunity, not a want. It felt like a need for investors to put their money into meaningful things. And so about two and a half years ago now, I think, we approached Bermuda, who was the only open regulator at the time that was willing to have this conversation about a digital security. And we spent um, several months and several hundred thousand dollars. And finally, with one of our startups, we came out of there with a federally approved uh, digital security offering. So we were ultimately the sole seed investor in the world's first federally approved digital security offering. That allowed us to really understand the framework, compliance, legal, accounting uh, framework, and also the fundamentals inside for the issuer and the founder. What were they going to be required to do? Um, what was the ongoing compliance requirement and so on? And then also the investor side, we started talking to crowdfunding platforms and investment banks that were doing private placement deals or broker-dealers in the U.S. And that led us to realize that we really needed to bring in-house the expertise to to, to bring private placement deals to, to the world and to list on crowdfunding sites. So essentially what we ended up compiling or creating was if you think about it from left to, to right on a, a capital markets lifecycle journey, you have early stage, which is typically represented by venture capital, growth stage, which is typically represented by investment banks, and you have markets, which is the IPO event at the end of uh, you know, series A through series E that big liquidity event. And so we ended up with a group of venture capital funds, a network of investment banks in several countries and a markets team that was connecting via API to federally registered and regulated digital securities exchanges. And so in-house, we were able to actually take an enterprise from the earliest stage all the way to, to a major liquidity event. And then we layered on just recently the funds team, which has uh, onshore, offshore, capabilities. It has a the digital asset fund, which is listed on Deal Square, uh, powered by Neo Connect and uh, JV, uh, JV from, from Front Funder. And we have an entire feeder uh, 
uh, fund into the offshore for, for digital ventures. So we've set up a, a way for almost everyone in the entire world from retail public in Canada to uh, offshore large um, international global institutional investors to, to invest in this digital asset uh, ecosystem. That's, that's uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you about is this uh, uh, important idea about the challenges uh, for regular people to invest in new projects um, with the accredited investor rules. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and, and how you're helping with this problem? I think for the average person that doesn't know, to really give context to it, to be sort of fair, but also give context. I mean, we all know the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And I, 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 <laughs> I don't, I don't want to believe that this was ever constructed in a way that was meant to keep people out of the, the most lucrative investments and allow for what, what really amounts to a boys club to emerge uh, of people that, that are not only getting access to these really interesting, exciting investments, but have cornered the market on determining what gets built. And so, you know, in the U S for example, there's only 2% of the population is accredited in Canada. It's four. And so that means in Canada, 96% and the U S 98% of people are prohibited from making early stage investments uh, due to this uh, accredited investors have, have an exemption for whatever reason, uh, typically just because they have a lot of money. So we, there are people, and this is what's shocking. There are people that work, in the uh, foreign investment bank, uh, analysts and so on understand everything about not only investing in general and early stage investments, but the actual investment itself that are prohibited from investing. And that's just because they don't have that, that one investment that they're running just because they don't have enough money in the bank. Uh, the, the government doesn't think that this person is sophisticated enough to make an investment decision and uh, because they just don't have you know, $5 million or a million dollars, depending on the jurisdiction, this changes, but almost all jurisdictions have this professional, sophisticated, uh, accredited investor exemption. And so just right there, we can tell this has nothing to do with the capability of an individual to make this investment decision or, and, or it's just a lazy definition that's easy to, to apply um, uh, regulation to. So back to, to the original uh, point, which is really, really important, is that in the U.S., there's about 500,000 accredited investors, which amounts to just less than 2%. Only about uh, three to 5,000 of those people actually use that exemption to invest in early stage startups, either directly or more likely through a venture capital fund. But what's really, really alarming, if we talk about absolute financial inclusion, which is not just access to a platform, but it's equity in the things on that platform, and therefore making... Um, uh, uh, voting essentially with your dollar to determine what gets built in the new world. That's the sort of financial inclusion uh, inclusion we're talking about. But the reality is, is that 30 people that manage the U.S.'s you know 30 biggest venture capital funds are essentially determining about 90% of what gets built. And those 30 people are exactly who you think they are. Like you know, 85% of them are white, rich, older men. And so. This is not about, about a system that, that creates the world, and at least as, I, as far as I can tell, that creates the world that the, the world around us that the world actually wants, the people of the world actually want. So our belief, and that's why the digital asset fund that we recently launched in Canada, we launched retail public. 
as we call it here, it's OM form compliant. And it's also TFSA and RSP eligible. We wanted anyone in Canada to be able to put, I think the, the minimum investment amount is $500. We wanted anyone to have access to that fund. And again, we truly believe that every dollar is a vote for the world that they want to, to see in a few years. I think that's a, that's a really great way of explaining the, the issue with accreditation, and it, which is, I mean, part of it is a knowledge problem, but, but it's uh, around the idea of, of determining the future by voting for uh, what you think should get built. I, I think that's a fantastic way of looking at it. Um, the one thing I wanted to ask you about uh, in addition to that is uh, j just for a clarification, I recall you discussing the difference between an electronic security and a digital security and, and sort of defining what those two things are and, and more importantly, um, how does digitizing an asset increase its value? If, that's a great question and a, and a very reasonable question. I think we can even add the paper component to it. And this is probably obvious to, to a lot of people, but not so obvious to some. Um, the, the paper security was the thing that was traded, the thing that was stored, the thing that was literally handed from person to person for hundreds and hundreds of years, going back to, you know, who knows actually, but some, some of the earlier um, sort of stock exchanges and stock trades were, were in Europe and, they were about sending vessels over to the new world. And obviously uh, more recently, but still a long time ago, the New York Stock Exchange was a group of men in the park in New York trading paper securities. And that led to, to what we see today, not just with uh, the New York Stock Exchange, but with all securities trading on all major exchanges. And I think that there was the, the technology to take the, it from digital to electronic was a significant event. Um, they used to require warehouses of, of like many, many, many warehouses all over the place to hold these securities. And, and for a lot of people that remember, and I even remember uh, the idea of bearer shares where the, the bearer, the person that held the shares owned that thing. It, did, it didn't have uh, electronic representation anywhere. It was literally that thing. And obviously one of the reasons why they're gone is because of compliance issues. You couldn't track who the owner was. Uh, they're largely gone from the planet today, but this, migration from paper to electronic allowed instead of, you know, seven days for someone to climb to, to, to find the time to climb three stories and go over, you know, uh, this, this large um, floor to find this one little paper security and then put it, uh, give it to a courier and send it up the street or across the country uh, to be able to put that on a, on a microchip and, and be able to, to retrieve that um, as, as quickly as they could was obviously an innovation. Now, um, many still have that paper certificate warehoused. It's just about the retrievals much, much quicker. Now, the, the difference between electronic and digital, and I, I definitely get the confusion there because digital is a technology and electronic is also, I guess, a technology. But the difference is, and so I often say a paper security is a security, an electronic security is not a security, and a digital security is a security. And the difference is, is that is, is a difference of ownership. It's a difference of control. Uh, it's a, a, the electronic version is a facsimile. And, and I, you can't, I can't, and no one should downplay the benefit of electronic versus paper. The public markets, and, and one of the arguments against digital, and not against digital, but put toward the idea of how important is this digital 
paradigm is they work pretty well, right? And that's, that's not, that's very true compared to the paper uh, model, but it's not at all true compared to the digital model. And so the, for example, I mean, even in the electronic world, we have uh, theft, loss. So, so broker dealers or other investment dealers stealing these things or going bankrupt and losing them. Uh, we also have, I think it was Dole, the fruit company, uh, and unbeknownst to it itself, not its, its fault, but its investment bank's fault, sell shares that didn't exist. And, and that is only possible because someone made a mistake somewhere, an electronic version of the security was created and was correlated to a system or a database that didn't know that that shouldn't occur. A digital security, on the other hand, and the first point actually I want to make before I, I finish that thought there is that, you know, this comes in, digital securities are typically one-fifth to one-tenth the cost of trading electronic securities, simply because a lot of the intelligence of the security is embedded in the, in the digital version and not the electronic version. So you don't need all these other market participants, transfer agents, custodians, clearing and selling services, et cetera to get involved because it happens naturally. It's quite literally programmed into the thing. Um, but the, the, the digital security itself is uh, uh, basically created from a, a quasi-public, quasi-private, meaning people that should have access have access, uh, investors, issuers, other uh, important service providers, also regulators, perhaps government officials can see this, this blockchain uh, this distributed ledger essentially issuance. And so therefore, and because it's public and because it's immutable or quasi-public, I should say, and because it's immutable, this thing of uh, theft and, and, and loss and, uh, and selling things that don't exist simply cannot happen. And so it's much, much more secure. It is, and that's why we say it is a security because it is representing the paper security, which is the world we live in today in three to five years. There'll be digital native security issuances that aren't correlated to paper. But for now, because that, that blockchain is immutable and public, uh, we can know for sure that it represents the actual security. So that's why we believe it is a security where the electronic version is not. Okay, that's terrific. And I think the, uh, I think the one thing a lot of people don't realize when they're, you know, when they're doing a trade on their phone or whatever is all of the processes in the legacy market is just... It's, an incredible number of people, processes, checks, and all this other stuff that they never see and they, they probably have no idea even exists. It's, it's enormous. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely enormous. The number of things that get moved and the cost that gets buried. And, and so people, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because the, you know, the cost of large trades, for example, how brokers have to put aside 5% of the trade and take three days to settle it, the amount of capital that's locked up from that as well. And there's all of these things that are occurring and, and fortunately or unfortunately, it's, it, I think it's cool, especially the retail public market has these now, these cool little Robin Hood and well, simple apps that made this look really easy. And you could say, well, it's cheap. It works well and it's cheap. Right. And, but the reality is, is that the costs are buried inside the investment itself. And so all they've done, it's kind of like when you buy a house, you don't pay for that that broker, right? Of course you do, right? The seller. <laughs> yeah. The seller has built that into the, the cost of the house. So if there were no brokers, if there was a software to do that, that house would be 3% cheaper. So in this case as well, what we'll see is, is that the, the retail uh, public has been convinced, misled 
indoctrinated into thinking everything's free now. But but the, the truth is it's baked into the cost of the, the item. So the item, the cost of the item will go down or the value will go up either way. The, 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 the investor will benefit. Yeah, and, and so taking taking that by extension, so um, the concept of when a when an asset is digitized that it increases in value. Can you explain that a little bit based based on the way you're approaching this here? Sure, and and I think one of the the best sort of frame of minds to have in thinking about this is compare, say, the U.S. dollar to to the Zimbabwe dollar, or more fair would be the Canadian dollar to the Zimbabwe dollar. The U.S. dollar is its own currency. Bretton Woods, you know, was uh, an attempt to make the U.S. dollar the world's reserve currency by taking it off the gold standard, et cetera. It largely succeeded. The petrodollar um, creates sort of this uh, the, 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 this, this, this world reserve currency reality or status that makes it unfair to compare it to any other uh, currency. And that's why the Fed, by the way, can print all the Australians. But anyway, for a normal state, Canada versus Zimbabwe, if we look at what, it, what, what makes the Canadian dollar worth more than this, uh, and I use the Zimbabwe dollar, uh, obviously because recently it had massive hyperinflation, and, and, and there's a lot of reasons. And so obviously we understand that Canada's, Canada's proximity to the U.S. Uh, helps. Canada's um, good school system helps. It's, uh, its fondness of equities and innovation helps, et cetera. There's no doubt that there's things that the country is just more fortunate <clears throat> to have. But it has also done a really good job of enhancing the attributes of currency, of its currency, Canada, to become fundamentally more valuable. And so, you know, if we looked at two parallel paths, two parallel universes where Canada was actually Greenland and uh, had made very different decisions in terms of its priorities economically, we could see a Canadian dollar that would be worth vastly less than it is today. And, and so some, some of the things, and there's eight, I mean, there's probably more than that. You could imagine more. But typically, there's eight characteristics of money that increase or decrease the value of that money. And there are things such as divisibility, uh, durability, um, portability, uh, acceptability, and so on. So, again, divisibility, you, you, you can take a $100 bill and divide it into 50s or 20s or 10s, et cetera. That gives it more utility. More people will accept it. Acceptability also. Uh, even the difference between an American Express and a Visa card is significant. It's value. Visa is a bit more valuable in, in, in some sense because more people accept it. Uh, durability. Can it be destroyed, et cetera, et cetera. And so the, the one thing that it's also important to understand is that the people that are doing the digital asset thing right today are not saying, I'm creating something out of nothing, and it's only going to exist in the digital asset world. Uh, I think that that is either naive or willfully um, you know, incompetent or an attempt to take advantage and, and not, not a smart uh, approach to this. So we have simply said we're going to acknowledge the world that exists today. So in our fund, we have some of the smartest people that represent real estate, smartest people that represent ventures, bonds, um, public equities, precious metals, et cetera. All of them are, are experts in their own uh, uh, asset class, finding the best paper assets, the best conventional assets, the best real world typical assets they can find. And then we are adding a digital enhancement to it. And so this digital asset, this digital representation of it, which is actually not a facsimile, but an actual representation of that asset, now 
becomes more valuable because of all the things that I said. It becomes much more portable. So let's say uh, public equities buy Apple shares. The markets in the, in the U.S. are 9 to 5, and uh, Monday through Friday they close, and that's it. And so if I take, and um, in, in some people that know the markets a little bit, GDR, ADR, like an American depository receipt, and I, and I wrap a bunch of Apple shares inside, and then I take that digital version of it, and I port it over and trade it on a foreign exchange, a foreign federally registered and regulated digital securities exchange that is open 24 7 365 i've added value to that thing it now has larger window or like in that case the the market never closes so that portability of it becomes uh, uh lifts the value of that of that asset the access more people can access you know you listen on multi-list on on several different uh, digital securities exchanges, all of a sudden new markets have access to that thing that have never had access to it before. The durability, it's immutable. Um, it can, is indestructible. Distributed ledger technology, you can't have a database failure and it gets wiped out. It's distributed. It's backed up to a point where it can't be harmed, actually. So all of those characteristics, if we compare a digital asset to a currency, if we look at the eight different characteristics, every single one of them is massively enhanced by the digitization of any asset, really. So it really comes down to whether you take that digital representation and make use of it. Do you port it somewhere? Do you trade it in a market where it wouldn't be traded otherwise? Do you have more people attempt to access that? And if you do that, the value of that underlying asset that would have just been stuck offline, unavailable in North America, outside of market hours, uh, you will naturally increase the value of that thing. That's a great way of looking at it. Now, from the point of view of um, looking at investments for your funds, how do you approach that process? From the, from the ventures side, we've not had um, any, any issues in terms of, of volume or quality. And it's simply because we've been, we've been doing this for so long. So in, that one seems to be a bit different than any others. So to comment on that, I, I, would, I would want to comment uh, on that generally, I'd want to comment specifically on ventures sure. first. I think we're really fortunate that, that I and many of us in the organization have just been in ventures for a very, very, very long time. So I think I probably on a day-to-day basis take for granted all of the people, the wonderful people that I know and trust now and actually like as well. Many of them are friends and many of those people are, are, are big names in the ventures world. That, that uh, creates just an extraordinary amount of high quality sort of deal flow for us to analyze. And, and we have to throw a lot of technology at it to process it all. So that, that just happens as a, matter of, um, as a matter of being and very fortunate. I, I think I commented on the rest of them. And we, we love to acquiesce to expertise. We love to acknowledge what we don't know. And sometimes even try to figure out what we don't know, what we don't know, and get people in place to, to, to either teach us or manage that thing for us. And in our case, with our funds, uh, we've compiled just an extraordinary investment committee that, um, that are, again, also fairly well-known people and are experts in their, in their category. And what's amazing is, as I said, each one of these is not only an expert in precious metals or real estate, but they actually are operating on the edge and um, working meaningfully with the digitization of that asset that they have been working with in many cases for decades. And so... 
uh, in terms of finding the investment opportunities, we rely heavily on them to, uh, to feed to us. Uh, and, and our intention is always our investment strategy uh, as a fund compared to another fund needs to be better on uh, just with paper alone, that the digital enhancement of it should be just uh, extra alpha, extra uh, gains and extra returns. And we always want to hold ourselves to that very, very difficult and strict requirement that um, our paper conventional investment strategy alone needs to be better than, than anything else that we see. Okay. And, and I recall that you had um, discussed in one of your, uh, one of your podcasts or, or uh, presentations that, uh, that the existing nature of private markets is, is uh, largely archaic. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? That, yeah, that's interesting. And actually, again, a lot of people probably don't know just how big the private markets are and how uh, um, disconnected it is and how, <laughs> how poorly it runs. And what I find interesting is that we're really focusing on the private markets right now, A, because there's a lot more opportunity there. First of all, it's a vastly larger uh, group of markets than the public markets. And again, that comes as a surprise to a lot of people, vastly, vastly larger. And, and also going back to the, the other point that I made too, is that it is sort of true that the public markets work fairly well. Uh, the rest of the story is that they could work about 10 times better, 10 times faster, 10 times cheaper. And we want to do that too. And that is really to, for us, the most important thing, because our core determination is to democratize access uh, to early stage investments and early early stage fundraising, uh, absolute financial inclusion. So that will require the, the the public markets. But what I find really interesting is that we are in the private markets very intentionally, and, and I think that this is just you know that idea in ventures eat your own dog food. We we decided that we were going to follow our own principles and and do two things. One is go to the market that needs it the most, and then also learn before you go to the riskier market. And so. I think that there's a fairly big financial reward for us if, if we can solve that private marketplace issue and that will help us to go to the public, which has a lot more liability and a lot more risk with, with a, uh, a lot more clarity, performance data as we've learned a lot of our, our lessons um, and, now, and now, now we can make a very, very uh, confident, bold public, public offering. But in the, in the private world, I mean, DealSquare itself is quite an innovation and that is a, a private marketplace that was, as I mentioned, JVD, created by NeoConnect, Canada's second largest uh, federally registered stock exchange and, and front funder, an exempt market dealer that focuses largely on early stage companies, uh, is in uh, a fintech sandbox and focuses a lot actually on crowdfunding. And, and they created this thing called DealSquare that is the private marketplace and really the front end UI for a system that Neo created called NeoConnect in a back end that allows dealers to connect to each other. So the deal square thing is essentially the, the ability to, to allow uh, investment dealers to see private placement and offering them random fund opportunities. And so that, you know, the reason why I described that is because that seems like that should have existed long time ago, right? 20 years ago, 25 years ago, yeah. when we were first, first building marketplaces and yet it doesn't exist. And so, you know, if I look at the complete far end of that, and, and we do see some actual angel list doing syndicates and, and, and some of these ATS is trying to get the permissions to do secondary, secondary trading. But if, if, I mean, our goal is to, is to have the entire 
life cycle of an early stage venture go from go from six to 12 years to six to 12 months. And, and again, that's another reason why financial inclusion is, is um, sort of a matter of fact exclusion, pardon me, is because not a lot of people can park their money for 10 years. And so if we can shorten the window on that, then, then we have, we have more people willing to participate and you have to create liquidity, especially for public markets. So in the private side, I think as we, as we become, as we introduce more and more efficiency and the reality was, so back to that venture capital thing, you know, people had shares, paper shares in these companies, and it could be things like Uber and Facebook, or it could be a bunch of other uh, tech companies that we never heard of because they didn't survive. Almost no liquidity, no marketplace, nowhere to park those shares, trade, you know, trade them even at a discount because you want to get out early. Uh, most uh, GPs, general partners of venture funds have no desire to help LPs get out. And so, you know, they don't want to facilitate trades. And I really don't know why, to be honest, no one's, um, well, I, I have some suspicions. Securities laws and trading are very, very difficult. The jurisdiction based, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And incredibly, I think actually it comes down to the thing that, uh, that need, would needed to exist to facilitate all this didn't exist. And that's distributed ledger technology. So now that we uh, put that into sort of the toolbox, all of a sudden it's like, yeah, private marketplace is an absolute disaster unnecessarily it's shocking that no one has taken um taken that on even for self-interest like a lot of people that have those illiquid assets and and have no way to sell you think that a bunch of them would get together and create a solution they haven't so so i think that introducing the visibility first so just marketplaces where you can see things for sale and then introduce the sort of trade engine and the ability to um, create sort of a central source of truth for securities that enables trading. I think we're going to see massive, 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 not only efficiency in terms of the n- amount of trading that goes on in private, which is very little, but we're going to see, as I said, the cost drop and access increase. I think when people think that they can get out in 10 months or even 20 or 30 months, as opposed to 10 years, people will put more money in. So I think we're going to see the private market uh, uh, increase in size, but a lot of that will conflate and hit and I think uh, uh, migrate into the public markets. So we're just going to see a portion of this sort of merge. Yeah, it's like, it's like adding, you know, by having liquidity, you're adding velocity to the entire uh, innovation and investment process. Yes. Now, what, um, what regulations or what, what challenges uh, uh, does this particular um, approach face right now, or, or are there many challenges in terms of setting up a, a, a good secondary market for, for private securities? None. There are, there are none. Other than the participants, um, the sort of proliferation of information and the acceptance of, uh, of that information as being real and meaning getting market participants to, act, to actually participate. One of the things that was different, I think, than the people that were doing digital security things around us was that we actually approached regulators and we talked to multiple regulators around the world and we said, listen, we have no desire to innovate within your current regulations and legislation. We promise actually that we'll strengthen it, protect it, only innovate on top of it. Um, Cool. And then most people are like, well, that's great because we're typically what we're seeing around us is people trying to attack that, pretend it doesn't exist, uh, misuse the legislation. misinterpreted, et cetera. And so fortunately, I guess for us is that we had a real 
business case for making this work. So we also spent a lot of money with accountants and lawyers to make sure that we were always, always, always far on side. Now we did invest in startups. They were playing in fintech sandboxes, asking for exemptions. And I do think that more good, uh, more inclusion can occur when regulators do allow for these temporary exemptions and see that they're not going to cause anyone harm um, other than maybe the, 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 the people that are extracting significant amounts of, of value from the ecosystem. But our intention was to build a model that, that could exist today. And so the reason why I very, very <laughs> bluntly, confidently uh, said none is because we actually believe that we have a system that is full circuit. It, it goes uh, from one end to the other, that all necessary stops and checks for compliance are, are, are met and all uh, the, the issuer and the investor are getting maximum value with actually the least number of stops. And that if a regulator had to look at that, regulator had to look at that, they would say, this is fantastic. In fact, it's much, aside from being cheaper and faster, it's much, much more secure. And if we believe that the regulator's mandate is to protect the investor, then they cannot object to it being more secure. So I think, and what we, what we see today, and a lot of people are not aware of this, that there's massive uh, cross-jurisdictional digital securities trading occurring today and a lot of regulators that are just fine with that. So uh, back to what I was saying earlier about this VC FinTech engine, this sort of global digital securities marketplace uh, uh, trading ecosystem that we've, we've created ourselves that is actually fully contained with our investments. And obviously we're working with our investments to bring in more participants. We're seeing firsthand as well that that is very true. So those people trading those cross-jurisdictionally, uh, these large amounts of digital securities are people that we sit on the boards of. And so that we know this isn't just a, a, a press release or an article. And we're very, very excited actually about just bringing, I think the large institutional investors, the presentation is, is simply, or the offer is simply one-fifth to one-tenth the cost, yes or no. It's not this whole world is going to be different. You know, corporations are sociopaths by nature. We appeal to their self-interest, which is profits, and, and this system does that. They don't need to. Hopefully the people inside the large financial institution are really excited about the implications of it as well, but the business makes a very clear business decision. On the other hand, we have you know, retail public people putting $500 on, on early stage startups. They care about the implications more. You know? The costs are actually a kicker, and they're embedded, and it's great, and we feel great about it, but we focus all of our energy talking about the emerging digital asset economy that is open, free, and democratized. Um, but we do not talk about that with the institutional investors and, and financial services companies. And they are more than happy, uh, as we've come to find out. All of this passes their, the, the chief compliance officer and chief investment officer. They read the long uh, white papers that prove what we're saying is true. And then they're happy to just, just run some experiments uh, see that it is more secure, see that it is uh, providing tremendous savings, and then just increase their orders over, over time. Well, and, what, and the one thing that you're talking about here that, that's uh, uh, incredibly valuable, I mean, much of it, but the idea that the, uh, the compliance and the regulators are involved all the time in the, in the process of developing out uh, this ecosystem and this idea, because if you don't include those guys, you're, you're going to have a big problem eventually. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, as a ventures guy, part of me really understands like, like, look at Uber, Uber didn't ask permission from the cities, they just did it. And I think that's a bad message 
because two two innovators in fintech because the power of the sec is is very centralized as opposed to you know attacking the tech taxi cartel in austin in miami in la which is in itself a really big thing to do but but trying to move the sec away from its uh, what it believes its own its current mandate is is orders of magnitude larger than destroying a taxi cartel and i think what, what i find fascinating and again i th- I don't know why we were able to see this. I'm just grateful that we were. But instead of feeling in, we were in combat with we, – we sat down with ministers of finance. We sat down with, uh, with again, the regulators and, and just said, teach, like, teach us. What, what do you want? Like, we don't – you know, I'm not an economist and I'm not, I don't come from compliance. Help me understand. And they told us. And we, were, we thought, well, that's, that's okay. Like that's not in opposition to what we want to do. And I think there's this illusion – or delusion that, that, that is very real in the fintech world, especially in the crypto world, that is that the regulators and the, and the, and the uh, money suppliers and the central banks are, are maybe even in some cases, and some people interpret them as evil, uh, but that they are also in opposition to what they're trying to create. And that's largely not true. Um, and, and back to your point too about these are people too, and, and you find out they're pretty cool. And when you can show them there's more security, they get excited. <laughs> They're not as boring as, as many people might think. And what we found, uh, Stacks, which is out of Singapore, and uh, the Global Stock Exchange has a, a fairly large share in it. I actually flew out there, sat down with those guys. They're extraordinary. And they've built this marketplace where trading venues around the world uh, can connect and trade cross-jurisdictionally. And actually, Stacks is is. Uh, an acronym for Securities Trading Asset Classification and Settlement System. And it's, it's designed solely with distributed ledger technology to, to, to facilitate that, not just blockchain-based, DLT, DLT-based securities trading, but cross-jurisdictional. And, and they're, they're talking to major nation, national stock exchanges uh, and doing tests, beta tests, large beta tests. Anyway, they, they also were, were keenly interested in the regulator, uh, regulator's perspective. And here's what's amazing is the amount of, work that goes in to um, sort of proactively creating all of the documents that, that the regulator needs for companies to submit, you know, even just small IPO, small, small public companies is excruciating. It's extremely costly to the business. You can't be building your sales team and, and uh, operating, uh, expanding business objectives when you're filling out uh, compliance reports and details and submitting that to the SEC or equivalent. In, in your jurisdiction. And so the question was obvious. The question was, if this is immutable and quasi-public, and if every single trade is memorialized to this uh, ledger, if, if we could give you that sort of God view in your jurisdiction where you could see every single trade that was ever made, um, and also some of these, uh, these public company reports that have to be sent in, but minimized, so abridged versions of everything, would you stop these companies from requiring from you requiring them to submit all this stuff, which let's be honest, they almost never read. And, and is only uh, resourced or, or sourced when a public um, problem occurs and they look six months ago and then they start some sort of enforcement action in, in this case. So that's very reactive. The crimes already occurred or the infractions already occurred in this case, they can spend time and we can actually embed machine learning, AI, and even just predictive analytics for them looking for certain sorts of behavior and they can proactively look at market participants that may be offside 
And instead of having the 99% that are innocent providing all of this detail that disrupts their business, instead they're searching for the 1% of people that are offside, which seems like a more fair system. And they're excited about that model. That's great. Now, for a final question, any thoughts on, you know, coming out of the uh, current, um, you know, shutdown that we have, there's, there's some discussion around the challenges that entrepreneurs are having and, uh, to, and uh, venture firms uh, can help get, uh, get our entrepreneurs and our startups back on the road to recovery and building things. Do you have, any, do you have anything that you wanted to talk well, I, th- I think that one, one thing that's great about the ventures world, and especially as we emerge from this, again, rich white man, venture capital-led model of ventures, which is just uh, really refreshing. We see more female entrepreneurs. We see more angels emerging. We see more venture capital investment theses focusing on founders first and community and so on. And that has really led, I think, especially in the Toronto area, uh, in New York area, to to communities, real actual communities, and not just a set of Starbucks that uh, venture capitalists and founders meet at. And I think what we're gonna what we're gonna see right now, and I know every single country has its own approach and has its own programs. Canada so far has seemed to be doing a fairly great job of wage subsidies that include uh, tech companies. I've, I've been actually quite surprised to see that. Not so surprised because the federal liberal government has been really uh, involved in uh, tech sort of investments and, and, and in, um, in supporting the tech community, especially here in Toronto. But I, I think that the, the thing that we need to do is to, is to support each other. And, and I think uh, where venture capital funds and angels can do follow on investments to provide bridge capital. And again, I, I was surprised the federal government, has put forward uh, significant. In fact, our one of our venture capital funds is able to, I think, uh, investments that are made since January that the federal government will match those. And if we choose to follow on uh, to up to a certain amount, match that as, as well. And so this that is pretty extraordinary. And um, we put one of our one of our investment bankers on that, compiled a t- bunch of information, created a slide deck, and distributed that to our to our founders to help them. Uh, uh, determine. I mean, if you don't need the cash, the capital, that's fantastic. Uh, many early stage startups do need that. And so that support is important. I don't know how long that'll continue. And so I, I don't expect or necessarily want government participation. We will take it while it's there. I think what this is going to come down to is that founders first mentality, whether it's real or not, first of all, is going to be seen. So the venture capital firms that have said it, and aren't there for them at this very, very difficult time, we're going to be found out. And, and that's a good thing. And regardless, I think that the innovators are, these are people that naturally take a lot of risk. It's hard, even in good conditions. And so I'm hopeful that the mentors and the advisors and sponsors and the LPs are able to just over deliver. And, and the fact that we're at home and we're not having to waste time on commuting, and in some cases, maybe for some people showering, they should use that time that they get back to, to, to do Zooms with their founders and actually ask them not only how's your, how's your runway, but how's your mental health? How are you feeling? And um, I'm hopeful that, that we uh, take that trend uh, going from strictly looking at investments uh, sociopathically to realizing that there's a full spectrum here of people 
and it should have a social impact sort of, uh, or social responsibility and the founders do matter and the founding team is amazing and, and realizing that actually when we take care of the people, the investment becomes more sound and more interesting. And I hope that this, one of the benefits that we, that we get from this extraordinary event that we're all living through right now is that we just get more of that. We realize it's all about that and we should stop some of these little silly things that we do uh, as, as a matter of probably just legacy mechanics of venture capital and instead just collapse in on the people. And, uh, and not just, like I said, solving basic business issues, but ensuring that, um, that people are safe and secure and as happy as they can be and as healthy as they can be. And I think if we focus on that, the business it, it takes care of itself from there. And full of your time uh, that we didn't discuss so far that, uh, that you wanted to talk about today. Um, no, I thought, wow, this was, I can't believe nearly an hour went past. Um, yeah, I could do this for another hour, but I think, I think you asked uh, very, very awesome questions and I had an opportunity to get a little bit more detailed than I normally do. So hopefully anyone listening to that, uh, that that's useful. Um, so I know I appreciate your time. This was great. Yeah. And, and, you know, we can always do this again sometime. Uh, before we pull, uh, connect with you and learn more about uh, Exponential so we can get that in the notes. Exponential.io is, is the best place to go from there. Um, you know, click around to, to see what, 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 what calls to you. Uh, there's going to be a lot of options to join the community, uh, make investments, uh, submit applications for funding and so on. There's a lot going on on that site. And uh, I, think, uh, I think it's pretty concise, though, so you'll be able to find your way pretty quick. Okay, that's terrific. Uh, thank you so much for your time today, James. And if you- Sounds great. Thank you. You've been listening to Fintech Fridays, brought to you by NCFA and Partners. Tune in weekly for the latest Fintech Friday podcast by subscribing to this channel. The National Crowdfunding and Fintech Association of Canada is a nonprofit actively engaged with social and investment fintech sectors around the globe and provides education, research, industry stewardship, services, and networking opportunities to thousands of members and subscribers. For more information, please visit ncfacanada.org. Oh, yeah! 